Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The red line on Chicago's metro system traverses a demographic as well as a geographic distance. The journey from one stop to another might represent a sharp drop in life expectancy. Our correspondent rides the rails to learn more about the city's inequality. And you can't go anywhere in Turkey without being offered a glass, not a cup, of tea. Now there's a government-sponsored push to go organic, and it's not clear whether Turkish tea drinkers are willing to pay up. But first, in these early days of the new year, we take a step away from the news to look at a necessary front in the fight against climate change. The science of what needs to be done to tackle climate change is well known. Lower the amount of gases such as carbon dioxide in the environment that are warming the planet. But the practice of it has proven to be a thornier problem. As so many times before at the UN's annual climate meeting last month in Madrid, governments struggled to find solutions that were seen as equitable for all countries. We can't accept paragraph 30 and would insist on its deletion. While the headlines remain on reducing emissions, that almost certainly won't be enough to keep the world from some of the worst effects of climate change. So if merely reducing the slope of the emissions curve won't suffice, engineers are going to have to figure out how to reverse it. Negative carbon dioxide emissions means rather than putting CO2 or another greenhouse gas into the atmosphere, you remove it from the atmosphere. Katrine Bragg is The Economist's environment editor. It's almost certain at this point that we will not be able to cut emissions fast enough to avoid 1.5 to 2 degrees of global warming. And as a result of that, we are going to, in addition to cutting emissions, we're going to have to actually remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And that's what's known as negative emissions or carbon dioxide removal. So how does this work in practice so that you get an actual reduction of CO2 levels? Plants have been doing this the longest. Uh, Through photosynthesis, they suck CO2 out of the atmosphere in order to just build plant material. And that's why a number of offset programs, for instance, involve just planting trees. But we can't do that. The numbers just don't add up for that to be on the scale that's required. And there's an additional problem with planting trees, which is that if they are going to be a reliable store of carbon, then, of course, you need to keep the tree alive. The other way that you could do this is is technological. So you could build what's frequently referred to as artificial trees. These are basically massive industrial plants that run air through fans. And as the air travels through the, the sort of installation, you chemically remove the carbon dioxide so that when it comes out the other end, it doesn't have any CO2 left in it. And finally, there are sort of halfway house kind of solutions. The main one here is known as BECS, which is bioenergy with carbon capture and storage. And what you do there is you plant trees, for instance, or you use offcuts from existing forestry projects. 
you burn that in a power station. And then before the gases escape back into the atmosphere, you capture the CO2 and then store it underground. So I've been hearing about schemes of this sort for really quite some time. And it seems that a lot of the climate experts have been talking about it for quite some time. Why isn't that already kind of happening at scale? The problem is that there are no real incentives to make this happen. Right now, carbon dioxide is effectively the one pollutant that you can chuck into the atmosphere with impunity. There's no need for anybody to capture it. And capturing it obviously costs money. Now, if you were to introduce a price on carbon, uh, suddenly there might be an incentive to remove CO2 from your flue gases. So that is to say that, that experiments that are going on with, with negative emissions technology are, remain necessarily small in scope. Yes. And just to be clear, there's a distinction here between carbon capture and storage on its own, which can be, in fact, climate neutral. It doesn't actually result in any additional CO2 being extracted from the atmosphere. For instance, if all you're doing is capturing the carbon from a fossil fuel power station, then you're just avoiding the emissions piling up in the atmosphere, but you're not actually removing any additional emissions. That's been going on for decades now. And it's been going on at scale for decades because oil companies use it to extract more oil from underground. But it doesn't actually result in net negative emissions. The net negative aspect of this is very much experimental. A few weeks ago, I visited Drax Power Station in the north of England. They're a bioenergy power plant. It's a massive, um, you know, many acres in extent power plant. But within it, there are just two shipping containers that are currently trying out the capture aspect of this. And what's interesting there is because they're burning biomass and going forward, hopefully capturing the CO2 from that burn, they could become net negative. Wait a minute. Why, why, is, why is that more net negative? Why couldn't I just throw a lump of coal in there and then capture the gas? The lump of coal comes from underground. So if you think of the flow of the carbon, the carbon is locked underground inside the lump of coal. You burn it, you release the carbon up to the atmosphere. With the bioenergy, what you're doing is the carbon is coming out of the atmosphere as CO2, being processed through photosynthesis by the plant, then being burned, and then you're putting it underground. So, you, so your arrow is moving from the atmosphere through the plant, through the power plant, into the ground. And so is, is Drax unique in this? Is, the, is this going on anywhere else in the world? It is really currently where this is being trialed in order to build it up at scale. Now, there, there are lots of other what's just known as plain carbon capture and storage projects happening, and those are happening at scale around the world. There's a, a growing trend towards this, but they are not net negative. What happens there is generally it's a, a chemical capture facility that's attached to a good old fashioned fossil fuel power station. Um, and so the power station burns coal, for instance, emits the CO2. But before the CO2 actually makes it into the atmosphere, the flue gases are run through this plant, the CO2 is sucked out, and then it is injected underground at high pressure. And fossil fuel companies do this because once they inject it underground at high pressure, they can actually coax more oil out of nearly disused seams. So, so this is not a negative process. It's a neutral process. 
And so where, where does all this fit in from, from a sort of policy point of view, where, where the, the, the investment and interest is in terms of the carbon capture and storage of the old sort, the net neutral, which certainly doesn't hurt, and the negative emission stuff, which, which looks expensive but would certainly help? Yeah, so I think there's a growing awareness that we are going to need the net negative technologies. The problem is that the money isn't yet there. There are signs that some regions are moving in that direction. So the US, for instance, has a tax rebate that was for projects that result in negative emissions. And that is increasing the number of projects that are in research and development at the minute. And similarly, the European Union is also promoting research and development in carbon capture. And, and what will really put a fire under those kinds of efforts? If it's sort of small scale and it looks questionably economical so far, what is it that will sort of push this into being a real help when it comes to, to mitigating climate change? So I think on, on the one hand, we're going to need government policies and government aid in the research aspect. And that's just to get these things off the ground because it costs a lot of money. And then long term, what we need is is a price on carbon. We need to have a situation where you have to pay if you want to pollute. You have to pay if you want to put CO2 into the atmosphere. And ideally, it'll be cheaper to take it out of the atmosphere. So, so far, small and expensive and not necessarily economical at, at, at small scale. But one way or another, that this, this negative emissions nut has to be cracked. Absolutely. If we want to avoid 1.5 to 2 degrees of global warming... Yes, we are going to have to crack the nut of negative emissions, whether it's BECS or direct air capture. And I think probably more likely a combination of the two in the short and in the long term, we are going to need negative emissions. Katrine, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. I met a guy recently who told me that he spends roughly $250,000 a month. I talked to another person recently who made $50 million at the age of 30. What do you do with that money? How do you spend it? How do you not spend it? What do you invest in? How does it change your relationship with other people? If you meet a rich person, these are questions everyone wants to know, but you're too embarrassed to ask. Well, guess what? I'm not too embarrassed. That's the whole premise of MoneyWise. We talk to real people who have made a significant amount of money, and we ask them all about their finances, and they're incredibly transparent about it. My name's Sam Parr, and the podcast is called MoneyWise. That's one word, MoneyWise. It's by my company, Hampton. You can find MoneyWise wherever you get your podcasts. Check it out. In Chicago's train system, widely known as the L, the red line runs north to south for 23 miles. It rattles through neighborhoods both rich and deprived. So where people live on that line matters. A lot. Over a 10-mile journey, the average life expectancy can drop or surge by 30 years. No American city has a bigger gap. Our Midwest correspondent, Adam Roberts, traveled the tracks. Public health researchers have suggested that a baby born in Streeterville, one of the most prosperous bits of Chicago, can now expect to live for an average of 90 years. And that's the highest life expectancy of anywhere in this city of Chicago. And that's 30 years longer than an infant born in the most blighted, run-down part of the city in Englewood, which is further along the red line. And so I wanted to take a journey along the red line to see what that change looks like. 
So I began riding down on the red line from where I live in North Chicago. And as we were approaching Streeterville, I was being a typical nosy journalist and looking around at my fellow passengers. And there was a gray-haired woman to the right of me who was reading a book of 501 French verbs. Opposite her, there was a man reading a study of the Arctic peoples. This seemed to me a pretty well-heeled group of people. And did you get off the line in Streeterville? Yeah, so then I walked up from the station into these prosperous streets, and this is really wealthy Chicago. You've got skyscrapers, you've got the lake nearby. There was a violinist who was busking to save money for college, and her case was filling up with dollar bills. There's a contemporary art museum. Beside that, there was a farmer's market where there were shoppers who were browsing for microgreens and organic beef and heirloom tomatoes and gluten-free tamales. This was really the most bourgeois bit of Chicago you could imagine. So after walking around for a while, I went back to the station, back downstairs and headed south. I got chatting to a guard who happened to get in. He was wearing his uniform and a stab vest and he had a canister of pepper spray. And we started chatting about how crime had soared. Violent attacks on the L and robberies and so on have doubled in the last three or four years. Pretty violent. Is it? I've yeah. been assaulted myself you on have. trains. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. oh, yeah. And he told me that the years are getting worse. He said, you can't even ask why anymore. It's yeah. gotten way worse. Uh, to the point where even I don't walk anywhere without my gear. Really? I mean, just and, and whereabouts are you on the red line at this point? So at this point, we're moving through central Chicago. We're still underground, and we're going through the sort of main tourist downtown area of Chicago. It's busy. And then we pass Roosevelt Station, and at that point, we leave the underground, and we move outside, and we can begin to see the neighborhoods as we pass by. So fairly soon, you see the brick pagoda roofs of Chinatown. Then we see the White Sox baseball stadium. And increasingly, there are warehouses, former factories, former industrial zones. We start to feel the city changing as we move south. The carriages are emptying out, there are men pacing through and they're hawking packets of cigarettes, green and white packets. 69 is next. And so, so where did you alight from the train as you got further south? So I got out towards the southern end of the red line in Englewood. Doors open on the left at 69. This is a world away from Streeterville, 20 minutes to the north. A baby born in this area could only expect to live to 59.9 years. And this is a much more crumbling, run-down part of the city. Lots are abandoned. There are groups of young men hanging around on stoops, on porches of houses with not much to do. It has a whole air of despair and neglect. But a discrepancy of 30 years in life expectancy is enormous. Is that just a function of what, what sounds like fairly extreme differences in terms of affluence? Well, I thought I would ask someone in Englewood itself to try and give me an answer to this. So I got chatting to a man called Melvin. They say Englewood yeah. because a lot of violence go there. Who's a resident of the area. He wears a yellow high-vis vest because his job is to protect school children along streets that are otherwise quite risky to walk along. Once you got tore down neighborhoods, abandoned buildings, yeah. uh, drug-infested guns, yeah. you know, these kids ain't got no access to... Uh, and he said kids 10 miles to the north of him simply don't don't have to deal with the realities of shootings and gangs and guns that kids in his neighborhood have to deal with every day. You know what I mean? It's a way of life, but you have to learn how to survive. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Police have counted 1,600 violent crimes, including 50 murders, in Englewood and West Englewood in the past year alone. 
And that's a rate that's far worse than the rest of Chicago and a lot, lot worse than in Streeterville. So the gap in life expectancy then is simply down to violent crime. Well, that's the most obvious difference that you read about every day in the newspapers here. But actually, it's a lot more complicated than that. I spoke to Lorna Thorpe at NYU Langone Health, a medical centre affiliated with New York University. And she was part of a team that produces the 30-year estimate. It looks at public health and other data for 500 different American cities and breaks that down to very small census tracts. And they looked at obesity rates, binge drinking, smoking, childhood poverty, whether people have health insurance, what are the reported rates of mental distress. And they came up with a very wide range of factors that could be contributing to the difference in life expectancy. But she brought it down to one factor in particular that she thought was the single best explanation of why, for example, Englewood is in such trouble, and that is racial segregation. There's a very, very clear correlation between low life expectancy and extreme racial segregation. And we know that Chicago is one of the most divided cities in America on racial lines. And if you want the most extreme gap on racial lines, you could compare Englewood, which is 95% African American, with parts of Streeterville that are just 2% African American. Well, why is Chicago so segregated then? Well, Chicago has a very complicated history, but I spoke to another expert on this subject, a demographer, Rob Parrell, who talked me through the differences between the white northern and central districts of Chicago and the black-dominated southern areas. And he talked about the shifting of ghettos, the shifting of public housing within Chicago. There used to be these big public housing blocks in the centre of the city. They were demolished in the late 20th century, and the occupants, by and large, were displaced into places like... Like Englewood. And if you now look at parts of the city like Englewood in the south, people again are fleeing. And the population there is now 40% smaller today than it was in the year 2000, because people are fleeing violence and poverty and the rotten housing. I mean, this sounds as if it's essentially two different worlds playing out, two sets of parallel lives. I mean, how much do the people of Englewood or of Streeterville know about what's going on 10 miles away? The truth is, if you're in a part of Chicago, like Lincoln Park or Streeterville, you need to have no understanding, you have no consciousness that places like Englewood exist. Unless you seek it out, unless you read about it closely in the newspapers or get on that train line, it might as well be on the other side of the country or on the other side of the planet. Despite being very, very close to each other, the people just don't mingle. It's a very, very divided city. Thank you very much for joining us, Adam. Thank you. There's not a lot that people agree on in Turkey these days. Even choosing a national drink is contentious. Some say it's raki, an aniseed-flavored tipple. Others, including the president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, root for a milky and non-alcoholic drink called Iran. But there's one beverage for which almost all share a passion. The beverage that unites Turkey is tea. Piotr Zalewski is our Turkey correspondent, based in Istanbul. The average Turk goes through about 3.5 kilograms of tea every year, which amounts to roughly over four glasses a day. And that seems to be higher than anywhere else in the world. And Turkey is also the world's sixth biggest producer of tea. T 
tea is and has been central to life and culture in Turkey for well over a century. You know, no one in Turkey can ever enter a house or a government office without being offered a glass. And so how is it that the Turkey ended up drinking so much tea? Tea arrived in the Ottoman Empire in the second half of the 19th century, quite late by comparison with the rest of Europe. At the time, the Ottoman economy was in serious decline, and one of the reasons tea caught on was price. Coffee had been around in the Ottoman Empire for a bit longer, a few more centuries, but by the 19th century, the price of a cup of coffee had become about four, maybe more times higher than that of a glass of tea. And so Turks tended to choose tea over coffee for reasons having to do with price. So tea has been popular since then and will continue to be? Most likely. I mean, tea is an established part of Turkish culture and it's not going to go away anytime soon. But if you excuse the pun, you know, uh, change has been brewing in Turkey. And part of that change has been the switch to organic tea. Now, the government of President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has begun offering subsidies to tea farmers to urge them to go organic. And the state tea company, Çaykur, which also happens to be the biggest tea producer in Turkey, plans to go entirely organic by the year 2023, which will also be the centenary of the founding of the Turkish Republic. So organic production just a decade ago was a mere 100 acres. Today, organic tea production is 10,000 acres. Um, That's still only 5% of the total area under cultivation, but rising. And in the meantime, the number of organic tea farms is also skyrocketing. So that number stood at about 135 in 2006, 2007, and today it has reached 12,000. So why this push, this state-sponsored push to go organic? Going organic has its advantages for Turkey because the costs of doing so are comparatively low. So Riza and the Black Sea region enjoys relatively warm summers, high humidity, which are very useful for tea production, but also cold and snowy winters. That means that the mountains where tea is grown near the Black Sea spend at least part of the winter covered with snow. And that prevents pests, insects from growing in the area, which makes organic tea production much, much easier than elsewhere. And so it's rising, albeit from a a slow base. So is that to say that everyone in Turkey will eventually be drinking organic tea? It doesn't seem so. You know, Turkish consumers are pretty lukewarm about organic tea. Organic tea farming produces comparatively lower yields. And researchers at the Recep Tayyip Erdogan University are actually testing organic fertilizers to see which one produces the best yields. Organically grown tea tends to cost about twice as much as the standard kind. And in a Turkish economy that has been sputtering as of late and where wages have been eroded considerably by inflation, asking tea drinkers to pay double for organic tea is a pretty tall order. And it looks like organic tea, at least for the time being, is destined for export. Piotr, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. Always a pleasure. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. 
And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here on Monday. I met a guy recently who told me that he spends roughly $250,000 a month. I talked to another person recently who made $50 million at the age of 30. What do you do with that money? How do you spend it? How do you not spend it? What do you invest in? How does it change your relationship with other people? If you meet a rich person, these are questions everyone wants to know, but you're too embarrassed to ask. Well, guess what? I'm not too embarrassed. That's the whole premise of MoneyWise. We talk to real people who have made a significant amount of money, and we ask them all about their finances, and they're incredibly transparent about it. My name's Sam Parr, and the podcast is called MoneyWise. That's one word, MoneyWise. It's by my company, Hampton. You can find MoneyWise wherever you get your podcasts. Check it out.